Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. That'll be our text today. Matthew chapter 4. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 967 in that Bible. We are continuing on this morning with week two of our spiritual warfare series. We've called it The Good Fight, Exploring Spiritual Warfare, and accompanying our sermon series, we've created a booklet to go with it, and in the booklet there are quotes and there are questions and there are just ways that you can dig deeper into the topic as we spend the next eight weeks going through this. And so you can buy those booklets for $5 at the Hub, and we've been encouraging everybody strongly to get into a life group this fall. This is our, these are our groups that meet uh, once a week throughout the week and and some are women only and uh, some are at different times but we have a bunch of groups happening right now many of them are going through this booklet as their curriculum and we encourage you find a spot somewhere where you can dig deeper into this with other believers Uh, so you can sign up for those at the hub if you have any interest in doing that I'm going to show you a clip as we get going, because today we are talking about Satan. Woohoo! And as we get into the topic, I want to show you this clip from the movie Amadeus. And if you haven't seen Amadeus, uh, I highly recommend it. It's an awesome movie. It's from the early 80s. It was the best picture winner the year that it came out. And it's the story of Mozart on the left up here and Salieri on the right. Salieri was another composer in the time of Mozart. Uh, and Salieri was the most esteemed composer in the land. He was loved by the king. Uh, He was well-known and respected, and he wanted to be famous. He wanted to be known for writing great and glorious pieces of music, and he was succeeding in that. And then a young man named Mozart comes onto the scene, and Mozart is young, and he is naive, and he is immature, and he is vulgar, uh, and he is sinful, and yet he has this incredible, undeniable musical gift that very soon far surpasses Salieri's. And so the the story of Amadeus is Salieri's jealousy and how he begins to lose his position uh, to this younger man who begins to far surpass him. And Salieri, who wanted to be great himself, begins to get so twisted with jealousy uh, and, and anger and bitterness that eventually he even declares war on God. And as he declares war on God, he also declares war on Mozart, who he views as God's uh, most gifted musical creation. And so the scene we're about to watch is we are seeing Salieri's descent uh, into even blasphemy. It's a bit of a difficult scene to watch as he declares war on God and on Mozart. Take a look. Someone's going to get in trouble. Salieri fails, of course, in his war on God and his war to make Mozart nothing. And I wanted you to see that clip. That was older Salieri reflecting back on his life and his struggle with Mozart. And there is just something in that short scene uh, that to me was just such a perfect picture of Satan and his desire to take us down, where Salieri declares war on God. And as he declares war on God, uh, he can't really take on God directly. So he's going to take down Mozart. He says, I will harm and hinder your creature on earth as far as I am able. I will attack you, God, by tearing down Mozart. And that, if there is a voice of Satan and Satan's mission, then that is it right there. Satan can't take on God directly. So Satan has also said, I will harm and hinder your creatures, us, on earth as far as I am able. Satan has declared war on God, and we are his primary area of attack. And so scripture tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind. 
Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Last week, we started off this series by focusing on Jesus and the victory that he has won, because we needed to start there as we talk about spiritual warfare, that Jesus has won already, and Scripture says Satan has been stripped of his authority, and that he has been stripped of his place and his rights, and Jesus has won the victory already and shares that victory with us. That's the good news. And spiritual warfare is anywhere in our life where we are pushing the enemy back, where we are pushing darkness back, where we are pushing evil back. Anywhere we are doing that in our lives is spiritual warfare. And there's a warning in Scripture that says here, be alert. And nowhere are we told to be afraid of the enemy, but be alert. Because although he has been stripped, and although he is being pushed back, and although the outcome of this is never in doubt, at the same time, as the lion is being driven back, the lion still has claws. And so we are told, just be alert that, that he is still a lion. And even as he's being pushed back, he can still afflict and he can still attack. And so we are to be alert. We are never afraid, but we are always alert and we are always aware of where he might be at work in our lives. And we're alert and not afraid because as we notice it, we can then tackle it and we can push darkness back there. So be alert, Scripture says. Not afraid, but be alert. And we make a mistake with the enemy uh, when we forget that. And when we forget that he still has influence, when we forget that he might be at work in our lives, when we forget that he's real or we just don't even care or act like he's real, that's a big mistake. But we also make an equal mistake if we go too far the other way. And if we give him too much credit and we give him too much attention. So I come from the Pentecostal tradition and they see a demon everywhere. Every rock, every tree, every situation is demonic attack. And that goes a bit too far the other way because Satan wants nothing more than for us to be distracted and to take our eyes off of God. And so we're going to take one sermon to give him a little bit of attention today, but that's only because we just want to shine a great big spotlight into the darkness and where he works in secret and where he tries to hide and where he is sneaky and shady and slimy and subtle. We want to expose that for what it is with God's truth. And so we're going to take the day just to talk about him. So let's take a look at our text today. We're in Matthew chapter 4. We're starting in verse 1, and Jesus has not begun his ministry yet in this passage, and he goes head-to-head -head with Satan for the first time in his earthly ministry. So Matthew 4, starting in verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. So here is Jesus about to start his ministry. 
He hasn't taught a sermon yet. He hasn't done a miracle yet. He hasn't revealed himself yet. And before it even starts, Satan is there, and there is a temptation. There is an agenda. There is an attempt to bring Jesus down. And as he tries to bring Jesus down, um, he is there using different tools. He's twisting God's word. He's challenging Jesus' identity. He's trying to sow doubt. He's trying to sow fear. And Jesus, of course, is able to withstand it all and overcome it all. But the word Satan, the name Satan, what the word literally means is adversary. That is what his name means. And so he is the adversary of God, and of course he's also the adversary of us. He is against us. He is opposing us. He is trying to take us down. In John 10.10, Jesus says that the enemy's agenda is to steal, kill, and destroy. If Satan had a mission statement, that's what it would be, to steal, kill, and destroy. So he is after us in our lives on many different levels. He has declared war on humanity, like Salieri. Salieri can't take on God himself, so he's going to attack God's creation, Mozart, in his view. And so Satan tried to fight God once. He lost terribly, and so he's declared war on us. And there must be something about us that just drives Satan nuts. Because Scripture says that we are the apple of God's eyes. We are the ones made in his image. And of everything that he's created, Scripture says we are his favorite part. We are the part he loves the most, made in the image of God and in reflecting the glory of God. And so Satan just has such a hatred for that, that his goal in life is to tear that down. And so as we talk about who Satan is and we get a bit of understanding, we're not trying to give him attention, but we're trying to get some understanding so that we know who he is and what he's up to so that we can be alert, not afraid, but alert and aware. Some of the things we believe about Satan are just kind of cultural things that we've picked up. And so we're going to look at a bunch of scripture today. We're going to go through it pretty quickly. Um, all the important scriptures are in the booklet, so you don't need to worry if you miss one. If you've got your booklet, they're all in there. But we're going to talk a little bit about Satan. Satan's origin story, and it's not completely crystal clear in Scripture, but there is a, a long history in church theology uh, that this is who Satan is, and this is how everything started. So here's a, a passage from Ezekiel 28. It says, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, speaking of the enemy. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. The Lord is speaking. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. And so again, there's a, it's not necessarily crystal clear. It doesn't say at the top, Satan, this is about you. Uh, but there is a long tradition in church history that this is a passage that relates to Satan, that, that there was some sort of fall, that Satan was created as a, a guardian cherub in that passage. He was an angel of some kind, and apparently a powerful one. And God created him good, as everything that God created was good in the beginning. And yet also with everything that God created, God gave choice because worship that is forced is not actually worship. And obedience that is forced isn't actually real obedience. And love that is forced can never actually be real love. And so free choice is given to every created thing, including us, and the freedom to worship God or not, to follow God or not. And Satan apparently chose not. And we get a little more insight in what Isaiah says in chapter 14 of Isaiah. But how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. 
You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. So there is a pride, apparently, that rose up in him. There was something in him uh, that desired to become like God. I can become. I can ascend even higher. I can glorify myself. I can get there. And in both of these passages, obviously, there is a casting down where God, you know, it's not a, a tough fight or a tough decision. God is able to throw him down. One other verse from the book of Revelations, chapter 14 uh, it says that there was some sort of war, apparently. There was some sort of rebellion. It wasn't just Satan, but Satan apparently kind of either through trickery or deception or whatever, uh, won some other angels over to his side. And Revelation says that war broke out in heaven. Revelation 12, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Michael is a, an archangel of God in Scripture. They fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. And so you, we, it's not, again, a crystal clear picture necessarily, but by piecing together a few different scriptures and, and church traditional understanding of these scriptures, uh, we get this picture of Satan and how this all went down. That Satan was created as an angel of God, created to be good, became full of pride, decided to take on the throne of God. Uh, every one of these passages clear, he was thrown down. Uh, God did not have to struggle much. What I love about the Revelation pa passage is that it says that Michael, an ark angel, uh, not God, but one of God's angels, went out to fight against Satan and was able to throw him down. Satan was not strong enough to stand up to the angel. So in other words, one of God's subordinates is stronger than the devil is. And that's pretty awesome when you think those are the subordinates that are on our side in this fight. So Satan has been cast down with some angels with him. Uh, we're going to talk about angels and demons next week in the series. And so just, again, just a bit of a picture of Satan's origin story and, and what we're starting to deal with. And I want to go through uh, just a few different titles and metaphors and pictures that Scripture gives about who Satan is. Again, just so we can understand him better uh, and see what he's up to and be aware of that in our lives. And so 2 Corinthians 4 calls Satan the god of this world, small g. Uh, that's important, small g god. Not big g god as in our god who reigns, but sometimes scripture uses god in the, in the sense of uh, an idol or another spiritual power, and they'll put a small g there uh, just to acknowledge that there is some spiritual uh, power here, but it's not the god. And so he's called the god of this world. Satan was in heaven, we just read. He's been cast down. The world is now his realm and where he has influence. And so the God of this world speaks to the fact that Satan still has influence. He doesn't have authority, like we talked about last week, but he has influence in this world, and we know that, obviously, right? Just experientially, as we watch the news and as we see our own lives, Satan is still at work in this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians. He is uh, of the spiritual realm. He has influence. He's not the king, but he is the prince. He has some uh, influence there, again, and uh, again, all of these are listed in your booklet. Uh, on a, a couple of pages in there, so you don't have to worry too much about writing these down. Jesus called him the prince of this world. 
Uh, again, not the king of kings of this world, not as strong as God, but a prince meaning he has areas of influence still in this world. What I love about Jesus using this term is he always uses it in a kind of temporary sense. When Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world, he uses it in, senses, in sentences like, the prince of this world now stands condemned. The prince of this world is about to be driven out. It's never considered a big, scary thing. It's always a temporary thing as Satan is losing his power through Jesus' coming. Jesus gives him the title Beelzebub in Matthew's Gospel. And you may have heard that phrase before, Beelzebub. And the ancient Canaanites worshipped a god named Baal. And you see that if you read the Old Testament. And Baal, the word means Lord. And they called their god Baal which means the Lord of Heaven. And Israel sometimes got drawn into worship of Baal. And so Baal Zabal was his full name in the Canaanite religion. But Israel came up with kind of a way to slam this fake god. And so they changed it from Baal Zabal to Baal Zabub. Baal Zabal means Lord of Heaven. Baal Zabub means Lord of the Flies, literally. And you might remember reading that book in grade 11, right? That deeply dark, disturbing book. And, and the name literally, Satan, Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. And it, the picture was Lord of the Dung Heap, where all the flies buzz around. Uh, it was meant to be a derogatory term for this false god. And Jesus got to associate this with Satan, uh, a false god, someone who is not uh, truly Lord in any way. Sometimes Jesus simply calls him the evil one. Uh, a short, simple name, just he's the evil one, just so there's no confusion as to what side he's on, so there's no confusion as to what he is up to. Uh, the simple title of the evil one sums up who he is and sums up what he is up to. At times, Scripture uses a metaphor, uh, just a word picture to help us understand a little more. We've already seen a great red dragon. Uh, we just read about in Revelation chapter 12. Uh, in John chapter 10, Jesus calls him a wolf, a wolf who is after the sheep. Uh, so we need a shepherd and we need to be on guard. Uh, we've talked about a lion already. And so these are, uh, I mean, obviously somewhat fearsome images of a dragon and a wolf and a lion. Um, the good news is, as we have been talking about, those that dragon is being pushed back, that wolf is being pushed back. That lion is being pushed back, but we're still told to be alert. My dad was out for a walk in the woods last week, uh, and he came face to face with a wolf as he walked through the woods. And then it turned out to not be a wolf. It was a dog. But for a second, <laughs> it was a husky, and it he took a picture, and in his defense, it legitimately looked like a wolf. And then it got a bit closer, and he saw there was a tag on it. But for 10 seconds or so, Needless to say, he was very alert in those moments when you're face to face. And, and he said, I wasn't really afraid, but for a second, I was just like, all right, I wonder what's going to happen next. And you're just very alert. And so, uh, again, the, the lion is being pushed back, but the lion does still have claws, and the lion does still have an agenda. He's looking for who he can devour. So we are not afraid, but we are alert and aware. We are looking for where he might be at work in our lives. There's other pictures in scripture that speak of Satan's function. What is he up to? Different titles that he's given. So he's called the tempter in scripture. And in our passage today, it says the tempter came to Jesus. And from the very beginning, Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, he comes as the tempter. He is trying to lure mankind away from God. Lure them away from God's way. Lure them away from God's word. Any way he can lure us into sin, into disobedience, into separation from God, he is there to do that. Now, Scripture makes clear in the book of James that although Satan may tempt me, I'm never allowed to use the excuse, the devil made me do it. 
That's not ever valid because James says that we fall into sin when there's something in us that wants to do something and Satan can tempt us, Satan can exploit that, but I sin because I want to sin. And Satan knows what my sins are, he knows what buttons to push, he knows how to put me in a stressful situation that I want relief from or whatever, but he can tempt, but he, he can't make me do it. And that's actually really good news, because whenever we're, when we are in a place where we are feeling tempted, we can start to acknowledge, okay, where does Satan tempt me in my life? What patterns happen in my life that lead me into sin? Where, in what state of mind? We talked in our life group this week, sometimes when you're really tired, it's really easier to fall into sin, as one example. Uh, so we can be aware of where kind of the access points are of temptation in our lives. And when we're tempted, we can say, okay, I, I'm being tempted to do this, but I don't have to do this. He can't make me do this. He can make it look really appealing, but he can't make me sin. But he is certainly there to try and get us to that place. He's called the accuser in scripture, the accuser of the brethren in different places. He is the one uh, accusing us of breaking God's law, accusing us of, of not acting well. He is that voice in our head that says, you'll never be good enough. You'll never get better. You're still sinning. You're still falling short. How could God love you? These accusational uh, this actually accusational voices that we can hear in our heart at times and not only is it just something that he'll do with us he'll actually stir this up against each other at the very beginning when sin first enters the world satan tempts they fall for it and they sin and then right away they turn on each other right adam right away it was the woman's fault God, you gave me the woman. It's your fault. Accusations start flying right away. And so this is one of the, the key things he does, is that if there's something wrong in my life, I can make it Rob's fault somehow and accuse him rather than taking ownership of it myself. And so the accuser is both personal uh, and divisive in our relationships. And when there's trouble in a marriage, the fingers point like crazy. It's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. The accuser is at work. He's also called the inciter towards self, which is kind of a fancy way of saying uh, just any time he gets us focusing on us instead of on God. In 1 Chronicles 21, there's a story where he does this with King David, uh, where he gets King David to count his army and kind of be proud of how strong he is as a king and, and the emphasis on himself and what he has accomplished and what he will accomplish, and God is not happy with this. And so Satan is there to draw us towards ourself wherever possible, to make us selfish, to make me not care about what Xavier has to say, to make me not care what the crowd has to think about anything that I'm doing, uh, makes me just selfish and focus on myself and what I can do by myself. Satan's given the title an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11:14. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, Paul writes. And by that he means Satan doesn't always come at us in a very obvious way. He doesn't always come as a big roaring lion. Scripture says in Genesis 3 that the serpent was crafty, craftier than all of the other things that God created. Uh, in the King James, it says the serpent was subtle. And, and there's something about that word that I really like when it comes to Satan, that he can be subtle and he can sometimes appear as an angel of light. Sometimes the path of Satan appears really good. And sometimes the enemy of God's will isn't so much a great big demonic attack to lead you astray. Sometimes the enemy of God's will in our life can be a really good option that looks appealing that just isn't God's will. 
And so we need to be growing in our discernment and our understanding of how to tell the difference and be aware that sometimes Satan might be the roaring lion, but sometimes he might come disguised uh, as an angel of light. Sometimes the satanic thing can look really good, and we need to grow in our understanding and discernment of how to tell the difference. He's called the deceiver and revelations, the one who deceives the whole world. We see that at play. Uh, he's trying to do it with Jesus in our passage today. Right? Just doesn't God's words say this? He's twisting the scriptures. If you really are the son of man, he's attacking his identity. Right? If you were who you said you were, things would be different. God's word says this. Why don't you prove it? If God is so great, why doesn't his word just, just little snippets of doubt and, and potential confusion and fear? And Jesus, of course, doesn't fall for any of it, but the attempt is there. He is out to deceive. He's out to get us not understanding God's word or twisting God's word. He's got us uh, his, an agenda for us to not be trusting each other and for words that we say to each other get twisted around into more that they should. He's a liar. And Jesus would actually give him the title, the father of lies. The father of all lies in John 8, 44. We're going to take a whole week in the series just talking about how he lies and how we can recognize that. But the father of lies, Jesus says, that's his native language. That's, that's his home tongue. That's what he speaks. He, he's just a liar. He lies. And as he lies and as we believe the lie, then he can sow a whole lot of damage in how we view God, if he's lying to us about who God is, how we view scripture, if he's lying to us about scripture, how we view one another, if he's lying to us about that. If he can get us to buy into a lie, we get bound up in incredible ways. And that's the bad news. But the good news is Jesus came to bring the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And so we need to be looking and aware for that. Not afraid, but alert. Finally, and there's more we could go into, but uh, this is just a kind of snapshot. Uh, Jesus says he's a murderer. That's who he is. He's been that way since the beginning. He's a murderer. Uh, he's out to steal and kill and destroy. And so we want to be aware of all of this so that we know what we're facing. At the same time, Jesus had no problem overcoming the enemy in the wilderness, right? Jesus wins this standoff. Satan comes and he lies, he deceives, he attacks his identity, he is trying to do everything he can to derail the mission and ministry of Jesus. And as he twists God's word, didn't, doesn't God's word say you should just throw yourself off a building? Because if you do that, then the angels will catch you. Like, doesn't God's word say that? And Jesus says, God's word says I shouldn't test God. That's, that's the more important thing. And it's not unreasonable, right? You're hungry. Just, just have some bread. Like, it doesn't sound like there's anything wrong with that. Just presto changeo, poof. If you're really God in the flesh, just make some bread. You're hungry. And that wouldn't be that big a deal. Jesus is going to make bread miraculously later in his ministry. But Jesus is not in any way going to let Satan call the shots here. He's going to walk in step with the will of God and nothing else. When Satan says to him, hey, all the kingdoms of the world are mine, right? This is Satan's realm, this earth. All of these kingdoms are, are mine, and I can give those to you right now. Just, just acknowledge me. Just bow down and worship me. And that's not just about a, a nice gift that Satan's trying to offer. What Satan's really saying is, you don't have to go to a cross. You don't have to go through the torture. You're going to be Lord of the earth one way or the other. I can make you Lord of the earth right now. Satan doesn't want Jesus going to the cross because the cross is going to be the end of him. And so all of it is appealing. All of it sounds good. Some of it, like the bread, doesn't even sound unreasonable. But Jesus sees through all of it. 
And the good news is, if Jesus can face off against Satan and overcome, Jesus told us we were going to do all the same things that he did. And so if Jesus could face off against Satan and overcome him, that means we can too. That means we have that ability as well. And where Jesus was not deceived and Jesus was not afraid, we can also not be deceived. We can also be unafraid. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of Man came was to destroy the devil's works. That's why he came. And so as much as Satan has an agenda to steal, <coughs> kill, and destroy, Jesus also has an agenda, and that's to destroy Satan's agenda. And there's nothing going on in your life, and there's no area where we are being afflicted, where Jesus is not stronger, and that Jesus has not himself declared war on in our lives. Wherever the enemy is at work in you, Jesus wants it gone. And he has already won the victory and now says, you live out and enforce that victory. And where Satan has declared war on you as people, I am going to use you to push him back. Because through the church, God is looking to display his wisdom and his glory, as we talked about last week. He's looking to do that through us. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 says, he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. So he has rescued us. He has purchased our freedom. And where we haven't seen that fully realized yet, our job is to see that happen as we push the kingdom of darkness back. So we are going to get, again, more and more practical as we go through this series. The first couple of weeks, last week and this week, we kind of needed to do just some big picture uh, theology stuff. And as we get going through the series, we're going to get more and more practical because we want to put tools in your hands. Okay, this all sounds great, but how do we do it? Uh, we want to give you those tools so that you can see this happening more and more in your life. But from today's message, what do we do really practically? First of all, we do what Peter told us to do. Be alert. Not afraid, but be alert. Be aware. Open your eyes. If you're in a, a difficult season in your marriage, it might not be because your spouse is completely selfish. That might not be the only factor at work here. First of all, you're also probably selfish, no offense. But second of all, there might be the enemy at work stirring this up. And that's not to say you don't personally have to take responsibility. We can't blame the devil for it. But he might be pushing some buttons to make this work. And that is true when there's uh, fr friction in our families, in our friendships, if there's struggle in our finances, in our health, whatever. We just want to be alert. We want our eyes open. We want the light bulb on so that we are seeing where the enemy is at work so that we can deal with it as we see it. We need to know who we are. This was Satan's big attack with Jesus. If you really are the son of man, like just trying to sow doubt. Like Satan's suggestion is, I don't think you are him. And Satan knows, obviously, but he's, that's what he's saying. He's like, you're, you're not really, if, if you were, you would be doing these things. And so there's an attack on his identity. And if Jesus had bought into that, if, if doubt and fear had crept in, uh, then maybe Jesus is, is knocked back a peg. And that can't happen, obviously, when it's Jesus. But, but that is our struggle, is that if we don't believe that we are in victory, if we don't believe that we are the ones who are going to push the enemy back, if we don't believe that God has given us authority and tools to do this, if we don't know who we are, then we're sidelined from the fight. 
and the enemy can have his way. And like we said last week, if I were the enemy, I would put a whole lot of effort in making sure you don't know who you are, you don't know what God's word says, you don't care about spiritual warfare. I would do whatever I can to make you full of doubt and full of skepticism and full of fear because if I can get you bound up in all of that as the enemy, then you're never going to be a threat to me at all. And so part of this series, again, as we said last week, from the gospel of G.I. Joe, is that now you know, and knowing is half the battle. Just being aware and alert, knowing who we are, understanding, knowing, and using God's word. Every single time Jesus gets attacked in our passage today, he responds with three words. It is written. God's word says, the truth is is and he fires back with god's truth and it knocks the lie of the enemy back every single time we'll talk a bit more about this in weeks to come but god's word is one of our greatest weapons in knowing who we are in understanding god's truth and in being able to live it out and walk it out and finally we need to help one another in this too because the nature of being deceived is i don't always know that i'm deceived the nature of deception is that sometimes the lie feels like truth, right? If a lie was an obvious lie, we probably wouldn't believe it. But sometimes the nature of being deceived, the nature of the enemy attacking in my family, the nature of him at work in my lives is we don't always recognize it when we're in it. And so we need to help one another recognize it. We need to help one another uh, see the lie and, and understand the truth. We need to do that together. There is no, in the history of the world, no army of one ever. Uh, an army is always a group, and we lean on and work together and lean on each other and help each other through it. Come on up, worship team. We're just about wrapped up today. We have an email address here, uh, questions at meadowbrook.ca. If you've got questions about the message at all, uh, we are happy to take time to do that and answer those questions. A big part of what we're wanting to do, uh, again, is just turn the lights on. Where, where Satan works in shadow, where he works in, in cloudiness and in unclearness, we're just wanting to, with God's word, uh, shed some light on what he's up to. When Paul is talking to the church about being alert and being aware, he says in 2 Corinthians 2, we do this in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. We're doing this so that we don't get caught up in this, so we don't get deceived. We're not unaware of his schemes. The word of God is saying you're smarter than he is by God's word and by God's spirit in you. We're not unaware. And part of today's message was just to make you more aware of his schemes, just so we can see a little bit more what he's up to. There's a man named C.T. Studd, which is like the coolest man's name ever. That's a man's name. And he was a British man, and he was actually a cricket player in the time when the British Empire dominated the world. Uh, he was a cricket player, which was the sport of, of the world. And he was incredibly talented, incredibly famous. He was really, literally, the LeBron James of his time. And he walked away from all of it. As a devout Christian, he felt the call to the mission field. So he left behind his athletic career, he left behind his wealth, he left behind his fame, and he went into obscure places in the world of the mission field. Uh, he wrote all kinds of stuff. He's incredibly quotable. If you do a search for CT stud quotes, uh, you'll find all sorts of gems and, and lots of amazing things that he's written. But one of the things he said as he was coming to the end of his life, he said, let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. 
Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. I like that one. Let's live our life in such a way that hell is scared of us. Sometimes my kids have nightmares, and, and sometimes I think our kids are way more perceptive to spiritual things than we are as adults, and, and they'll, they'll have a dream or, or maybe even reality, had a sense of something dark in the room or whatever, and we always go in and we pray, and we're teaching our kids how to pray and how to, uh, in the name of Jesus, tell things to leave, but, but one of the things that, that really stuck with my kids, my son especially, was when these things would happen, I would come in and I would say, like, you know what, Matt? I said, those things are scared of daddy. Just anything, they're scared of me. And he's amazed, really, they are? Because to him, they're so real. And, and I said, they are, they're scared of me. They're scared of us. Hell is scared of us as we rise up in the authority that we have, as we live out the victory of Jesus Christ, as we proclaim the gospel, proclaim the truth, push darkness back in so many ways, CT studs saying, let's make sure that when we die, hell gets excited because we've done such damage to the kingdom of darkness while we're here on earth. Let's not be passive. Let's not be lazy. Let's not be apathetic. Let's not be afraid, but let's be alert and aware. And it can start with the simple prayer that Jesus says at the end of this passage. It's the word of God and praying the word of God is always a good idea. Jesus finally says to Satan some simple words, away from me, Satan, back off back off of my life, back off of my family, back off of my kids, back off of my health, back off of my whatever. But if Jesus prayed it, if those are his words, then those are good words for us as well. Away from me, Satan. Your prayers can start just there. We're gonna worship just as we close today. And as we said last week, our worship is our warfare. It's easy to check out during worship. It's easy to be distracted by things, but worship is part of our warfare because in worship, we proclaim the truth and we proclaim the truth together, which means we sing it together and we hear it together and our faith grows as we do that together. Scripture says, put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness and God inhabits the praises of his people. So when we worship, the heaviness can lift and God shows up and the kingdom of darkness gets pushed back. So we're gonna sing one more song. I'm gonna ask you to come and warfare with us today as we worship him in closing. Jesus, thank you for what you have already won. Thank you, Jesus, that hell trembles as we get up to worship. Hell trembles as we rise up to pray. Hell trembles as we read your word and proclaim it. Hell trembles when the people of God come together and stand up together. When the people of God rise up and know who they are in you, the gates of hell tremble, not because we are great, but because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Thank you, Jesus, that we are not alone and that your name is greater than anything that would come against us in this life and so we call upon the name of Jesus and the power and everything that goes with that name and we say in our lives away from us Satan as you said Jesus away from us Satan in our marriages away from us in our children away from us in our friendships in our churches in our health in our finances in our culture away from us in the name of Jesus and father as we walk with you as we are obedient to you 
as we pray, as we worship. Thank you that the gates of hell do not prevail, but the gates of hell are pushed back because of your great power that is at work in us and through us as you fight with us and for us and as we, your church, stand up in your name and push the kingdom of darkness back. Be with us, keep us safe from the claws of the enemy, and show your glory in us, Lord. Show your glory through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Some of us will be up here if you want to pray afterwards. Other than that, God bless you. Thank you for being here, and we will see you next Sunday.